Amazon workers in Alabama are fighting an important new front in the labor movement, the struggle of low-wage workers. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality. There's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class and the crimes of big business. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work and the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you. Very glad to be here. Thank you for joining us. Impeachment is over. That was a full week of the Senate watching videos. And Donald Trump predictably was acquitted. Usually a show trial is put on by those who are conducting the trial with the understanding that it will result no matter what in a conviction. But this was a show trial where the people organizing the trial knew in advance that there would be an acquittal. So I'm not sure what its impact is on most people. Of course, the events on January 6th were very, very important. But what we do know for certain, Professor Wolf, is that tens of millions of people are in crisis. We've talked about that. Low-wage workers are fighting back. We're going to talk about the union drive at Amazon in Alabama, the struggle for a $15 an hour minimum wage. All of those issues are you know, reflective of the deep crisis facing literally tens of millions of families in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. I was looking at unemployment figures globally. They're really staggering, especially for women. But there's another side to the crisis, which is the crisis of the system itself. I was looking at a Wall Street Journal article this morning. The headline is, Europe faces tough task in weaning economy off 1.8% trillion dollars in COVID-19 relief. And by Europe, they're not talking about all of Europe. They're not talking about all Europeans. They're talking about the capitalists themselves, about the capitalist economy. You know, we're all often told that the difference between socialism and capitalism is that socialism is a state-run economy. The state directs the economy. The state manages the economy. The economy doesn't function Uh, without the state interference or state direction. But capitalism is free markets. Capitalism is independent. It's not run by the government. But absent the government, both Europe, I'm using air quotes, or the United States, air quotes again, talk about the capitalist class in both countries, I'm not sure they'd be surviving right now. No, they wouldn't be. 
and they know they wouldn't be, and anyone who's paying attention knows they wouldn't be. So yes, your implication is exactly right. Any pretense these days that we have an economic system, capitalism, that is in some sense a free market and that the government is a minor detail footnote and not a significant player, any such claim is silly. And that's why you don't hear it very often. The right-wingers who normally talk like that are very quiet these days, as indeed they must be. Here just are some of the immediate issues, and then I'll talk a bit about the longer-range ones. We are now a capitalist system in which virtually the entire private enterprise system is on government life support, as is a very ill person uh, in the hospital when all the tubes are running in and out of them, literally keeping them alive. Companies are borrowing more money than they ever have before. The level of debt carried by business in this country is higher than it has ever been. And the reason for that is that the government is providing limitless amounts of money into the economy, literally creating it and making it available at barely above zero rates of interest. Under those circumstances, every business that has a problem and a good many that don't are borrowing under the idea that borrow it now, you'll never be able to borrow it again like this. And if this economy falls apart, you won't care about the money you've built up as a debt anyway. So it's a free fall, if you like, of the game of a private capitalism. It's completely dependent on the government. The government is already the largest buyer of goods and services in our country. It has been for decades. So again, the notion that the private sector doesn't depend on the government is silly because the Defense Department alone pumps into the economy in purchases, purchases of goods and services, hiring of working people, just shy of a trillion dollars a year now. I mean, that alone is an incredible crutch for the private capitalist system. I mean, I could go on the federal government by its military expenditures around the world makes it possible for goods and services to move in and out of the United States. In other words, it's a kind of insurance or protection agency for imports and exports. It maintains at government expense the harbors and all the rest. And let me drive it home one more time because it's also silly when you think about it. We, as a capitalist system, long ago decided what most other capitalist countries did, that it is not safe to allow a private enterprise to control the money supply. That's why we have a central bank. The money that makes the system work, the money that makes the world go around, is given to the government as its unique responsibility. So we all have in our wallets a governmental document, a Federal Reserve note, it's called, which is the government shaping literally what can happen in the way of an economy that depends on buying and selling as totally as we do. So here's the truth. Capitalism has always relied on 
and worked very hard to control the government so it serves them, provides the money they need, provides the loans they need, provides the protection they need, provides the orders that they need, all of that. And that's why government is controlled by big business. It's not an evilness. It's a fact that they need to control something that they depend upon so much. And the only fear that capitalists have had is the fear that the government in a society that has universal suffrage, where we, the people, get one vote per person, it's then become risky in capitalism that under the right circumstances, the mass of people, being the majority, could use their political votes to undo the inequality that capitalism generates in terms of who has the power and who has the wealth. So they've never been against government. They've been against government working for the mass of people, and they've been in favor of a government that rescues them at time of difficulty, like now, and that keeps everything working in their favor, which is what the normal situation is. Richard, the government has intervened in many, many ways. It's provided loan guarantees. It's provided direct cash. In the first CARES Act, and combined with the loan guarantees provided by the Federal Reserve and quantitative easing, a term that most people don't really understand. Some people have a glimmer of it, but most people don't really know what it means. But a huge amount of money was essentially given to the capitalists who use that money, and largely with no strings attached, to bid up stock prices. So the stock market, which appeared to be crashing at the beginning of COVID, is now hit like all-time highs. Again, that's the government intervening. The government is now saying we can't afford or the economy can't afford a $15 an hour minimum wage. That's too much. The thing that we talked about last week, the phony debate versus the real debate about the minimum wage. But let me ask you about another element of government intervention here. It's not only a lifeline to the capitalists, but it has this distorting impact. And I wonder if there's at some point a day of reckoning or days of reckoning where the largesse or the ease with which capital has access to money provided by the government, whether there's a downside, a blowback. I'm looking at another article in the Wall Street Journal Borrowing binge reaches riskiest companies. Demand for corporate debt has offered lifelines to struggling firms that can borrow at interest rates once reserved for the safest type of bonds. And I'll read a couple of sentences and then get you, if you would, to explain how important this might be. Investors' near insatiable demand for even the riskiest corporate debt is fueling a Wall Street lending boom offering lifelines for struggling companies even as the coronavirus pandemic still drags on the economy. Companies such as the hospital operator Community Health Systems, Inc. and newspaper publisher Gannett Company have issued a record $139 billion of bonds and loans with below investment grade ratings from the start of the year through February 10th, according to LCD, a unit of the S&P Global Market Intelligence. More than $13 billion of that debt had ratings triple C or lower. The riskiest tier 
save for outright default, meaning complete bankruptcy, about twice the previous record pace. Why, Richard Wolf, under the current circumstances, are companies buying up corporate bonds and debt uh, the riskiest, the companies that seem to be the most likely to perish in the coming period? Why is that such an important investment right now? Again, from a rational point of view, that would seem to make no sense. Well, there's several things going on. One of the ways to understand it is to recognize what it means that the Federal Reserve is making available all of this new money that it literally creates with the click of a computer key and making it available at virtually zero interest or half of 1%, 1%, so on. What that means is if you have a great deal of cash to invest, which these days very rich people and big corporations do, you can't invest it in the bond market. You can't lend it out in general to the people you normally do because the interest rates are so low. If you want to make money by taking that free money that the Federal Reserve gives you, you have to run around the market looking for people who will pay you significantly more than this virtually free money you get from the Federal Reserve. So you do that and you look for risky places to lend your money, not because you have to, but because you want to. This is how you're going to get 5% or 10% or 15%. You can borrow from the Federal Reserve if you're a bank at 1% and then lend it to Gannett newspapers or any of the others at 5 10 or 15%, and you pick up the difference. Is it risky? Yes, but there's no other way for you to keep your money growing, which is the name of the game in capitalism and is the obligation of banks if they're going to successfully compete since they're all doing it. What the danger is, is that companies like Gannett or the Community Healthcare or any of the others who normally couldn't and wouldn't borrow for risky activity now say to themselves, this is our chance. Will it work? We're not sure. But there are all these people that are willing to lend us wild amounts of money so we can at least try to solve our problem with that money. Yes, we'll commit to pay 5 or 10%, but if this works, we'll make a lot more than that and it'll all work out. This kind of optimism, if you like, foolhardy risk-taking, if you don't like it. This is what typically happens when you pump these wild amounts of money into the economy the way we do. There's nothing surprising about it, but it is reaching proportions that are similar to what we had, for example, in 2007, before that bubble burst and the system crashed, and that we have had throughout the 20th century before. So it's very worrying because it is such a, a similar pattern. Moreover, if you have this kind of situation, the search for good paying return requires you to take more and more risk, it means, and it's only a matter of time, before a significant number of these highly risky projects paid for with borrowed money fail, and then the borrower can't pay back. 
Now we have the problem, what happens to the lender, whoever the lender is, when the borrower to whom the lender looks for repayment can't do it? That's when the lender begins to have trouble. Where are they going to go? Well, we know where they're going to go. They're going to go to the government to bail them out. And here comes then the interesting problem. Is there a limitless capacity for the government to bail out capitalist enterprises? And the answer, at least the answer given historically, is no, it's not limitless. At a certain point, the mass of people recognize, as they should have all along, that they are being shortchanged in order to endlessly subsidize big business. And at that point, especially if the government has cut back on public support in order to cover the cascading losses of the private capitalist sector, then you have a fundamental political clash. Here's the way I see it coming so that you can see why I'm talking this way. If you take the 15 most successful hedge funds this year, the man at the top of the richest one took home $3 billion in 2020. Number 15 down the list, he only took home $846 million last year. A society that gives some people that kind of return. And by the way, $3 billion works out to over 50, 50, 50 million dollars a week that gentleman took home. He never buys lottery tickets because he wins the lottery every day without buying a ticket to distinguish him from the rest of us who buy the tickets and never win. Okay, you cannot forever have that kind of inequality in which 25 million people are collecting unemployment insurance, in which the government has to cut back a $2,000 check to a $1,400 check. You're nickel and diming the mass of people while you're allowing free money at no interest rate, flooding into the stock market, creating incomes like $3 billion in one year for a hedge fund buyer and seller of pieces of paper. The limit is as it always is the political and ideological horror building up in the population. And in my view, it even played a role on January 6th, this horror, even though it went through weird combinations and permutations in those right-wing people that came. But part of their upset, like that of people like me, is watching the horror unfold and noticing that the rest of the population doesn't seem to have the memory of where this led in the past. Yeah, it's very interesting. There's some studies being done about the composition of who was there on January 6th, who was in the Capitol building, who got arrested. A lot of them were middle-class people. Absolutely. A lot of them were, including CEOs of company, business people, even that woman who got shot, Ashley Babbitt, she became a QAnon conspiracy believer, but she had a small business. It was failing. It's been failing. She had been an Obama voter, you know, in 2008 or 2012, or maybe both. But yeah, the class composition of the smaller capitalists, the small business people, the people who really don't have enough to make it, 
you know, who are really decimated by debt, who aren't constantly bailed out, that becomes the part of the population that historically, and that was true definitely in Germany in the late 1920s and in Italy around the same time in terms of the social base for fascism in those countries. And again, let's just put all of this into perspective of where we think we're going. Of course, we don't have a crystal ball, but when you look at, as you've pointed out, these cascading problems and the government intervening over and over and over again, not bailing out the people, not bailing out the poor, not bailing out the workers, not bailing out even big parts of the middle class who are being devastated, but bailing out and providing the cushion or the pillar, the structural foundation for the big capitalists, does it at a certain point turn around and become even unmanageable in that way? Like, is there a day of reckoning? And, you know, there's that famous quote, I don't know who it's from, maybe it's J. Paul Getty from the Getty family, but maybe it's others, maybe a lot of people have said basically the same thing. If you owe the bank $100, that's your problem. If you owe the bank $100 million, that's the bank's problem. Well, a lot of people owe the banks big amounts of money, as we can see, and the whole economy seems to be predicated on debt and profit off of debt, investment in debt. In other words, a complete absurdity at the same time so many people are suffering. But it always appears that the backstop is the government for the big capitalists. But again, what you're suggesting is even that has an outer limit. Absolutely. It always has. That's what you see historically. You cannot keep playing paper money games. It's the fool's misunderstanding. Yeah, you can do it for a while. Yeah, you can do it for quite a while. And that's very tempting then to begin to believe you can always do it. But remember, debts in the end demand somewhere the wherewithal to pay them off. And if you issue debt way beyond the capacity of the borrowers to ever make the amount of money necessary to be able to survive in their business, pay their workers, give themselves a profit, and cover their enormous debts, well, then they're not going to be able to do it. Let me remind you, roughly 20% of American businesses today are zombie corporations. That means the profit they're earning now is insufficient to pay the interest on their debt, which means that the only way they keep going is by borrowing still more. Okay, that'll get you through another year or two or three, but it will not, in the end, save you from the day when you can't borrow anymore because the next lender says, you're so far in debt that I'm afraid to lend you because I'm afraid you'll declare bankruptcy 10 minutes after I lend you the money, and then I'll never get my money back. People don't understand there's a risk, even in this crazy environment, for the lender. Yeah, they want high interest rate. Yeah, they're willing to take risk. But if they get a sniff, a whiff, a faint idea that the person they're lending to, even if it's a big company, is going to surprise them by literally the next day declaring bankruptcy, which means they're not going to get their money back, if at all, maybe half of it, maybe five years from now, 
That's too dangerous for them, given the debts they have as lenders. They also have debts. Then the system stops. By the way, that's what happened in the second half of 2008. What brought that bubble to a crash was not the government and not people uprising. It was the decision of biggest banks in America to stop lending to anyone, including one another, to whom they had been lending night after night, day after day for years, because they suddenly realized everybody is facing the same problem, that the people they lend to cannot pay back, which means if I lend to them, they may declare bankruptcy and cut me off from a repayment, and then I'm sunk. So suddenly, there was a freeze. Nobody would lend to anybody else. I'm talking about the biggest banks in the world. And the government then had to step in and become the lender of last resort, guaranteeing everybody's borrowing, guaranteeing to pay everybody back, covering everybody's debts. And to do that, the whole economy came to a crashing halt. I don't know if you remember, but the autumn of 2008 was a time when the entire capitalist system globally wondered whether it would survive. We are heading towards something very similar. Richard, and one of the more confounding disconnects between the law of supply and demand, many of the nearly two dozen small American companies that recently jumped into the business of making N95 masks, these are the high quality masks that are in high demand, they are facing the abyss. They are facing bankruptcy because even though masks are in short supply and hospital workers are having these great masks rationed to them, they're unable to break into the market. I mean, talk about the bizarre and absurd irrationality of this capitalism, this American capitalism. Here's the New York Times, can't find an N95 mask. This company has 30 million that it can't sell. Health workers are still being forced to ration protective masks but small U.S. manufacturers can't find buyers, and some are in the danger of going under. I don't know if you saw this story. It's crazy. I mean, a year into the pandemic, here it is, the disposable virus filtering N95 mask remains a coveted piece of protective gear. Continuing shortages have forced doctors and nurses to reuse their N95s, and ordinary Americans have scoured the internet, mostly in vain, to get them. But here they talk about this company, Demtech or Deemtech. They reconverted their business at the beginning of COVID. They've made 30 million masks, but because they're not in already existing supply chains with hospitals and pharmaceuticals, they can't sell. I mean, talk about a patchwork system. Yeah, well, you know, you're paying the price in this country of allowing the so-called private enterprise system to function. You have spent the last 50 years in America celebrating private enterprise, demonizing government or planning or government coordination. 
as if it were an inefficient intrusion. So now everything is dependent on the private, and a private company is constantly looking to survive and to grow its so-called bottom line profit. It enters into supply chains, it cuts agreements, it signs contracts to advance itself. Its job is not to do what's good for society. It has neither the time, the expertise, nor the interest. It is focused on its own bottom line. The ideology of capitalism tells us that if everybody, this is the old Adam Smith, if everybody pursues their own self-interest, i.e. every company searches out for what's profitable by some magical effect, we will all be better off than any other system. This was never true. This is the most transparent ideological whitewash one could imagine. If you want a system that works properly, you have to organize it. Every corporation, especially the big ones, that's what they do. They plan, you know, Walmart plans everything. Uh, Amazon plans everything. They have a dictatorship in which the CEO at the top organizes everything. The very efficiency we celebrate inside the company, we then pretend wouldn't apply outside. But the result is exactly what you report. Somebody's making a lot of money off masks, and that person doesn't want a lot of competition. Does the society need masks? Sure it does. Society needs lots of things. But nobody is in the business of producing what society needs. Capitalism is a system in which you produce what your company, what your enterprise needs, and that's profits to survive. And if profits mean you constrict your deals, you tell the people you sell your masks to, I don't want you selling anybody else's mask, I'm giving you a special deal, that's the name of capitalism. That's how it works. Look, the countries that have done the best to deal with it, include both so-called socialist countries, Vietnam, Cuba, mainland China, and so-called capitalist countries, New Zealand, South Korea, Taiwan, and so on. But what both of those had in common is that the government is a respected institution, is a supported institution, has the authority and the power when faced with a national catastrophe or crisis or challenge to mobilize resources, public ones, but also private ones. That's why they've been so successful. And the reason the United Kingdom and the United States have been so unsuccessful is we don't allow the government to play that role. We're all full of being free individuals who are able then not to wear a mask so half a million of us are dead, not to do these other things that a coherently planned society would do. And the irony can be summed up this way. Most Americans have learned that you undo your own freedom when you need to so the community can survive. I don't demand the freedom to drive through an intersection how, when, and where I want to. I allow the government to install a traffic light. And when it's green, I go. And when it's red, I don't. I allow the government to tell me when I can and cannot cross the intersection because I don't want to die in a car accident. Asking you 
to observe the rules about mask wearing is exactly like asking you to observe the rules of a traffic light. Only a society like ours, so bitter about the inequality in it, the lack of opportunity, the downward slide of our society, would get people so upset that they would make the nonsensical claim, I have to have my freedom not to wear a mask, or I have to have my businesses free not to produce the masks we as a people need. That's when you've become kind of crazy. I'm reminded of those people a few years ago, old people, who were carrying signs that read, keep the government's hands off of my Medicare. They were so upset about government not supporting them, not helping them, hurting them, burdening them, that they forgot to pay enough attention, and so they wanted the government not to take away their Medicare, having forgotten or allowed right-wing people to make them forget that it was the government that provides the Medicare that you don't want the government to get its hands on. The sadness of that, the desperation in a person who goes to such lengths, that's what you're seeing, even in the writer of that Wall Street Journal article who seems mystified that we could have such a thing as a social need, masks, not being met in a society like ours, even though we have the capacity to do so. That's the norm in capitalism. It does not meet social needs. It's organized to make a higher priority be private profit, and so we suffer the loss of attention to our social existence. Richard, a final question. We only have about uh, 90 seconds left for your answer. So you mentioned Amazon. Uh, Amazon, 6,000 Alabama Fulfillment Center employees formed the union. They're voting right now. The company is pulling out all stops to smash this union. Scare tactics, intimidation, firing of organizers, you name it. This is the socialist program. So Referring to maybe the most well-known socialist ever, Karl Marx, he wrote, along with Engels, in that first sentence in the Communist Manifesto, the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles. They put a little asterisk on it, too, that said what they really mean is the history of class societies. There were societies before classes arose that there wasn't class struggle, but uh, the point being that the detonator for historical development is the struggle between classes. You mentioned in America, we're taught, well, you're all individuals. There are no classes. If there is a class, it's just one big class. It's the middle class. But basically, we're just 360 million individuals, no classes. But here we are in Alabama against all odds, against the most powerful and richest capitalist in the country, Workers are organizing, and it really does demonstrate once again that no matter what, no matter what the level of propaganda, the level of oppression, the level of repression, that basic elementary struggle by workers for justice, that doesn't stop. No, it doesn't stop, and it illustrates what we were talking about a few minutes ago. Those workers are inspired by many things, by their need for a decent life, by their desire to give their families something like the so-called American dream they were led to expect and work for. But they are also driven 
and this is very important, by the sheer indignity, the fact that Jeffrey Bezos disposes of $200 billion of personal wealth that is based on getting the surplus, the profit that labor like those 6,000 people in Alabama produce for him. And that there's something unspeakable about the fact that they cannot do for their families the most basic services and that he disposes of enough money to buy, you know, half the countries in the world. That there's something so ugly, so unfair, so unjust, that that's part of what fuels their upset. And here's the irony. They may repress. They may win on this one. They may lose this one. They may scare. But the bottom line is they are presiding, including Mr. Bezos, over a system that becomes more unequal every month. And in that way, they are perpetuating and guaranteeing that that class struggle is not going away at all. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He is the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 